Stand Firm. We're in the uh, third week of our series called Standing Firm. And what we're doing is we're looking at a passage out of Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, he's writing to a church in Ephesians and he's writing to the believers there. And what he's telling them is to say, look, you need to beware of a reality that if you are a follower of Christ, that there is something more going on in this world that's trying to take you out than just what meets the eye. Satan is there and he's using his evil tricks and schemes and plans to try to knock you out of the race, to try to knock you out of the running for Christ and get you to live your life in a way that runs counter to what God would have. And that he would, you would take your eyes off of him. And if you follow that path and you aren't aware of this, Satan will knock you out. He will take you out. And he's going to use whatever he can. But the good news is that you don't have to be defeated. You can stand firm. And so as we look at Ephesians chapter 6, what he's saying is, uh, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies and tricks of the devil. And then he goes through and he says, use every piece of God's armor to resist the enemy in the time of evil so that after the battle, you will be standing firm. And I just love this, uh, this language here. Stand firm. Stand your ground. And I believe we need to raise up a church and a, and a body of believers that aren't just going to be knocked over at the first sign of trouble, at the first thing that knocks them out, but a group of people that's saying, I am standing firm. I'm standing firm to the end. I know attacks will come. Paul's being right up front. He's saying, look, if anyone's telling you you're going to be a follower of Christ and life's going to be easy and things aren't going to be tough and everything's going to be hunky-dory and just peachy keen and your life will always be just filled with roses and, and, and lemonade, no, it's going to be hard and the battles are going to come, but the difference is you're going to be ready. You're going to be equipped. So put on all of God's armor. And so here are the six pieces of armor that he talks about being that we need to be ready. And he's looking at the Roman soldiers of the day. He's saying these Roman soldiers are equipped and ready to face whatever attack comes and they're not going to be defeated. And so he's saying, as followers of Christ, here's our armor, the belt of truth. We talked about that last week. If you are not centered in the truth of Christ and you're not building your life on the foundation that he gives, you're going to be taken out real quick. And Satan is the great deceiver, the liar. He's trying to get us focused on the wrong things. We'll talk more about that today when we talk about the breastplate of righteousness. So the covering here. Then the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Okay, so maybe it sounds kind of militant to you, but, but Paul is using this as an analogy to help protect us and to help prepare us for what is to come. So today, let's jump right into the breastplate of righteousness. What is the breastplate of righteousness? What does the breastplate protect on a suit of armor? Your heart, right? Your heart, your lungs, your vital organs, your chest, right? It protects this part. And even in, in, in the, some of the translations, it says the body armor of righteousness. So even thousands of years after this was writ written, Today, if you're in, in the military, if you're in security, if you're a police officer, what do you have? You've got a bulletproof vest, a flak jacket, right? It still is so important to have this body armor to protect the vital organs, to protect your heart. Because you can't survive a shot to the heart. But you can survive if you get hit elsewhere, right? Anyone have seen uh, Holy Grail? <laughs> Remember the old movie with the uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail? Yeah? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, now we're going, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. Um, one of my favorite scenes is, is there where the two knights are in battle. You know, they're, they're facing off. And I don't remember all the details, 
But all I remember is they're fighting and they're wearing their, their suits of armor. And the one knight comes the other and he slices his arm off. And what does the, what does the knight say? See, I, you knew you guys would have... Tis only a, a flesh wound. You know, and it's pretty gross, but it's a comedy. And your own blood's coming out. His arm's just laying on the ground. And then they keep fighting. And he slices off the other arm, right? And so now he's got no, he's got no arms, right? And then, he, and then the other, the knight cuts off both of his legs. And, and now he's on the ground just as a torso. And he's going, you know, but the flesh wound, you know, I'm still, come here and I'll gnaw your kneecaps off, right? Because I think he's ready to go. He's ready to fight because his vital organs were still intact. So you see, you can sacrifice some of the other things. Did I make my point? Um, or, or how many of you, you know, once you get people going on that movie, it's like, an endless game of quoting, uh, we are the knights, you say me. You know, all right. If you haven't seen the movie, you guys just have no idea. It's, it's British humor, it's very weird. Um, anyway, if you take a shot to the heart, it's over. And so Paul recognizes right away as he's writing this letter, he's saying, look, one of the key things after being grounded in truth, you've got to protect the heart. If you take a shot to the heart, if, if you allow your heart to be compromised, it's over. You're not going to stand firm. And so what he understands is that one of Satan's primary schemes, when he talks about the tricks and the schemes of the devil, is simply this. Go after the heart. If he goes after your heart and he gets your heart, you're done. You're sunk. It's over. The heart. The heart. It's where, it's where we hold our emotions many times. We talk about that. But I think it's deeper than that. It's where our devotion and our loyalties go. Whatever captures our heart, we seem to gravitate towards. Now, now I'm somebody who tends to probably be more of a thinker than a feeler in, in, when I process things. But boy, if my heart um, gets captured in some way, it can easily override even the most rational thoughts. Anyone understand? <laughs> right? You can think, I know this isn't right. Or you, maybe you could say, for example, I know we have no money to support X, Y, and Z, but then somebody comes or the Girl Scout rings the, you know, the girl at, the, at your doorbell. Matt, please have some, you know, would you sell some Girl Scout cookies? I say no, and I close the door. All right, but in other instances, you guys are, well, my wife makes cookies, and they're really good. Uh, no sympathies. All right, got to buy Girl Scout cookies. No, but you, that's what happens. Your heart gets overridden. You go, okay, I'll buy those cookies. I, I didn't want to, but you're so sweet, and your heart maybe overcomes your rational thinking. But we see it in larger decisions, too, that what our heart gets captured, we, send, we tend to go in that direction. But spiritually speaking, the heart also represents more than just the center of our emotions. It represents our soul. It represents sort of the, the place where who we are resides and where our eternal being that God created, where it sits, and it's, it's in our heart and where that allegiance goes, that's where, that's where we are connected. So how does Satan go after the heart? There's many different ways that Satan tries to go after our heart, but I'm just going to kind of put it under the general umbrella of temptation. Temptation, it's it's being tempted in very different ways that he's trying to pull us away from God and the things of God. Just that simply. Temptation is anything that pulls you away from God and the things of God that he has for you. And so Satan is using that to try to capture our hearts so that now we are not focusing on the right things. And so I want to talk about focus here for a few minutes. What are we looking at? What have you been captured by? Where is your focus at? Now, you know, I, in my front yard, I've got grass in the front yard and and I like to cut it on an angle, right? And if you cut it on an angle, those of you who cut grass, where do you have to make the first cut on the lawn if you're going to cut on an angle? Right, from corner to corner. So you go right through the middle, right? Versus if you kind of cut in straight lines, you can just kind of start with that first line and follow the sidewalk or whatever you have. But if you're going to make that first cut, 
diagonal cut through the middle, how do you make sure that line is perfectly straight? You look right down at your feet, right? You look over off to the side. No, you look straight ahead where you want to go, and you try to hit that point. And for me, it's always that test. I get to the other end, I'm like, ah, oh, got a little, got a little curve in it, you know. I mean, so it, it, you have to keep your focus. Or, uh, and if you don't, you're going to veer off path. Now, maybe if you're not cutting grass, maybe you're you, you text. Ever seen the person? We don't text, but if somebody else texts and drives, you've seen that other person that does that. <laughs> they veer all over the road when they text. I can handle it. I can send a quick text. I, I stay straight. But, don't, but other people, they are all over the place, right? I remember growing up, and, and we'd be driving along, and, and, you know, we'd be kids. We'd be misbehaving in the back seat, you know, before we had to wear seat belts and car seats and all that stuff. And there'd be four of us just shoved back there. And my dad would get upset, right? We're going down the highway, and he's like, if I have to pull this car over, right? And, and then he's reaching back, and he's trying to do this. Was he driving straight? No, his focus was on the kids and not on the driving, and we were swerving all over the place, our life at risk. So I think we get the point that if we take our eyes off where we're going, Satan is going to try to take us out. And so what he's trying to do is get our focus somewhere else and then watch our heart follow that focus. There's a great proverb, Proverbs 4, verse 25 to 27. It says this, Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stick to the path and stay safe. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from evil. Be very clear here. Get your focus right. And then mark out that path and say, I'm going to walk that path. This is about standing firm, right? It's when we get off that path that things start going sour and start going sour fast. Now, I'm a married man, a happily married man, and my focus as a married man, when it comes to any other female, needs to be 100% on my wife, right? It needs to be on her. I'm to have eyes only for her and to stick to that path. And when I do that, it keeps me honoring her, spending time with her, loving her, meeting her needs, she meeting my needs. And really, we talk about this oneness, and there is a richness in marriage that comes when that focus and devotion is only on the other. But Satan wants me to take my eyes he wants my focus to be on somewhere else to destroy the marriage. And it comes in easy ways. It comes in simple things that just don't seem like a big deal. The temptation comes but says, look at this woman. Linger a little longer on this movie or on this picture or click on this site. Pornography holds people in addiction. And there's been times I've had to face that and fight that. But maybe it's not even just in that realm. Maybe it's not just getting my eyes to look in other directions when it comes to females. Maybe it's he can get us so busy with our job that the focus is on, on a hobby or is on our job or is on earning money and, and all of a sudden my focus becomes on that and not on my family and what starts happening. I start veering off that path that has been marked out and my feet start walking in a path that is sidetracking me and takes me from where Jesus wants me to walk. Following Jesus is not easy, as I said earlier. Temptation is real and our hearts are under constant attack and I'm prone to give in as anybody else. Pastors are not immune from temptation, are not immune from the challenges. And some would even argue that we may even face more. The more, like I talked about in the first week, anytime you want to make any significant spiritual progress, when you want to take a step of faith, when you want to go, okay, I'm, God, I'm going to grow with you, you're going to be under more attack because you're somebody who's trying to take advancements in the kingdom of God. So, so don't get lulled into thinking that the longer you're a Christian, 
or the, the stronger Christian you are, that, that attacks won't come and that temptation doesn't come. It comes and it's real. And when we take our eyes off of that, maybe you can relate to some of these feelings. In the past, I've felt things from, from um, you know, feeling hollow, feeling empty, dirty, worthless, damaged, unworthy. That's what happens when we take our eyes off of what Christ wants for us and those temptations that pull us. And what, and what Satan wants to do is he's saying, one way he can do it is put your eyes on your problems. We all have difficult circumstances, and so let's just hone in on those problems. Let's focus on those instead of Christ. And when we focus on those, then he says, all right, now you need to find ways through that on your own. Figure out your own solution, not with Christ. So go into escapism. You know, maybe, maybe dive into a hobby. Maybe play video games. Maybe self-medicate the drugs or the alcohol. Maybe go shopping because that always makes you feel better when you have a bigger debt and you've spent some money and you're wearing new clothes, right? That, that works. That's a spiritual truth. And, you know, afterward we just feel like, no, you know, those are not the answers. And, and, and so we, we take these, these steps and, and in the end it just leaves us going, where, where's my heart? Our heart has drifted and our heart has shifted. So the question becomes, how do we combat this? Do we have any defense against our heart drifting and protection? As we've said at the beginning, Paul said, yeah, let's look at God's word in Ephesians 6. We have the breastplate of righteousness. So he's saying, look, if you want to protect your heart, and this was something I had to really work through this week, because righteousness is a word that, I don't know, if you ask too many people to define it, I mean, we don't really use it and then typically throughout the day, except like, whoa, dude, that's righteous. What does that even mean? I mean, I don't know what that means. But, but so how does righteousness act as a protector of our heart? Well, the definition of righteous, um, whatever I Googled first, said the quality of being morally right or justifiable. The quality of being morally right or justifiable. So another way to say it would maybe be perfect morality. That if somebody is righteous, if we were to be fully righteous, we would be perfectly moral. And so in general, we may speak of people who are righteous of saying they're very upstanding people. They seem to walk in the way of what they believe. They're very upstanding. They're morally pure and right. But, but, but righteousness really is perfect morality. It's perfectly living to, the, to, to the, the laws of God, to what he has put in place, that we wouldn't miss a single iota of that, that we would be perfect. So the solution you may read at the surface is saying, okay, so the breastplate of righteousness, the protection of my heart, is to be perfectly moral. Because that's what it says, righteousness, to be perfectly moral. When Satan attacks, if you are perfect, if you don't mess up, if you don't have sin in your life, if you're obedient to God, if you are living the perfect life of a Christian, you cannot be defeated. Thanks, Paul. That's great. Let's all aspire to that. Is that really what Paul is saying? Yes and no. It is about righteousness, meaning if we live perfectly and if we are covered in a way of righteousness, then Satan can't get to us. So let me, let me unpack this a little bit more, though, about how we kind of understand righteousness in the wrong way. A couple of ways. And we already started talking about one a little bit when we talk about temptation and sin, but I might put it this way. A righteousness determined by my happiness or pleasure. So maybe we decide to say righteous living, for me to live a right life, my, my, my framework for looking at it is whatever makes me happy. If it makes you happy, do it. If it brings you pleasure, do it. That is your moral compass. And so if you live off of that moral compass, it's easy for you to say, "Is I'm living righteously. 
And really what it is, it's a, it's a type of self-righteousness to say, it's, it's good for me. It's right for me. It works for me. And so all of a sudden there's no outside standard for you to compare to or to have to live up to or to adhere to. And I think that's what so many people struggle with Christianity about is I want to be my own person. I want to make my own decisions. And if it makes me happy, I want to do it. I don't want to hear what the Word of God has to say, what some preacher has to say, what the church expects, what my wife says. If it makes me happy, I want to do it. And so we follow this, following our own pleasures. We might just say it's human nature. But the problem with that, at least as we understand it from a biblical and Christian perspective, is that we get bound up in sin. That pretty quickly we become slaves to sin because so many of the things, and it's not that God doesn't want us happy or to have pleasure, but he wants to do it in the way that he created us to experience it deeply and fully, and typically that requires a long-term perspective. And so many of the things that we think are bringing us happiness now is the short-term, immediate perspective that is just in the moment and then all those feelings I described earlier of, of unworthiness or emptiness or just searching or it's not found in that and God is saying there's a bigger picture and so we become slaves to sin and, 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 we, and here's the reality as believers or as not but as believers we are in this tension it's not just as though like I'm a follower of Christ now I'm never tempted I don't ever have challenges I mean Paul himself this is a great passage and we're going to look at a couple out of Romans here Romans chapter 7 Verse 25, uh, verse 21. Here's what, here's what Paul says. Let's see if you can relate. If it seems to, um, it seems to be a fact of life, a fact of life, meaning this is, this is reality, it seems to be a fact of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. For how many of you could that be your, your life verse? <laughs> This is my scripture verse. I claim that. I understand that. Right? We want to do right. I really do. But when I find myself and I do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, he says. But there is another law at work within me that is at war with my mind. This law wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. So he says that we become slaves to this and it's so hard to break free from some of these patterns of life and living or addictions or whatever that is. And, and then... Like again, we talked about the problem. He, he seems to echo this here. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? But that's the feeling of when we are trapped in sin, when we're trapped in addiction, when we're trapped in ways that we know aren't honoring to God, when they're not you know, walking uprightly with our family or with our, in our marriage or with our relationships or in our finances, when integrity is not there. Over time, you just start feeling the sense of, this is miserable. This is not how God intended us to live. Who will free me from this life that is so dominated by sin? That's the question we need to be asking. Who's going to do that? And the answer is verse 25. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And so he, again, he addresses there's this reality. And so if you want to find your righteousness, you're just pursuing your own mandate of what you want to do and saying that as long as I follow what I want to do, according to me, everything's right. It's going to lead to the slave enslavement to sin, and in the end, there is no answer, there is no hope in that. The second way is be your own God. Not just talking about kind of sin and what you're doing, but saying, I will just believe what I want to believe. I'm going to create my own system of belief. I'm going to go over to the biggest smorgasbord, you know, all-you-can-eat place and, and my faith, and I'm just going to take a little bit of, little bit of this. I'm going to take a little bit of 
you know, this food and a little bit of this, uh, you know, Italian food and some Mexican food and some, I'm just going to put my own together and this will be my faith. And now if this is my faith and I just choose to believe what I want, I choose to believe this part of scripture, but not this part. And I'm going to choose to believe that, but not this. Well, great. Now you can be righteous because you're only going to do truth that lines up with what you want, how you want to live and what you want to believe. This is the earliest of the sins. This is the earliest of the deception that Satan put on humanity. And it begins in, in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of the book, when, when the serpent comes to Eve, who's been told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's what he says to her. You won't die, hissed the serpent. God knows that your eyes will be opened when you eat it. You will become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. You will become just like God. I think this is what we're doing in this self-righteous kind of model. We're trying to become just like God. And the same pride that, that got Satan kicked out of the realm of the angels was his pride. His inability to, to worship. His inability to, to surrender to the all-powerful God. And so you want to be your own God, and so you can be your own God is how he's, he's, he's tempting her. The woman was convinced. Here comes the temptation, right? The fruit looked so fresh and delicious. It would make her so wise. So she ate of the fruit and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It looked so good and it would make her so wise. And in our world, there are so many people that feel they are so wise because they have everything figured out. And Christianity is just a bunch of, of old religion and things that don't work and archaic structures. And, 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 and we are so wise. We are so modern. We are so advanced. But you look at our society and you go, are we really? Are we truly finding the freedom and the hope and the life in this kind of approach? And it's the self-righteousness that people think they're safe and think they have the, the life lived in this way. And Satan uses that to say, I'm going to attack you and your heart is not with God. I've got that. And it pulls us away from that. So the problem is that we have no moral compass. We have no eternal compass to look at. If everyone here has their own truth, what is truth? Just by pure logic, that can't be, there can't be truth. If everyone has a different truth, there's got to be something that we can all rest our lives on. The third kind is a different kind of self-righteousness. And this is, a, this is an odd kind of self-righteousness, and Jesus dealt with it back in the day. And that's the, I'm living a perfectly moral life. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I follow his word, and, and I've earned my righteousness. Meaning, man, if you see the way I live, I, try, I work so hard to, to, to be faithful to my wife and to not be tempted by these addictions and to be upstanding my finances and my integrity and my work and, and guarding my character. And because, because of all those things, God loves me. And I'm, I'm earning my righteousness. And Jesus reserved some of the hardest criticism to people who were in the group of believers at the time and the, which were the Pharisees. They were the teachers of religious law. They were the ones who, who went through great lengths to not mess up one little bit. And boy, if anyone else did, they quickly called others out because they were going to be so devoted and committed to the law of God that there would be no fault found in them. There was a self-righteousness. There was a piousness. There, there was a oh, holier-than-thou attitude. And when that begins to creep in into any of us, where we think we have it all figured out and we deserve what we have because of how we live before God, 
the pride that's there and the legalism that emerges from that is detestable to God. It really is. In Matthew chapter 23, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, even so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! I think Jesus likes it. Getting a little vibe there from him that this is not the way to approach life. That that we have we're so good, we have it all figured out. We deserve it. We earn it. So the problem with that kind of righteousness is hypocrisy, legalism, self righteousness. And Satan uses that to take us off course. Now, what's what's the solution? Because the crazy thing is, you know, the, the Pharisees lived about as perfect as any followers of God could ever. Walk, and here's what Jesus is saying is, you know, um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, but I warn you, and he's talking to the people now, not the Pharisees, he's talking about folks like us, he's saying, unless you obey God better than the teacher, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees do, you can't enter, enter the kingdom of heaven at all. We are screwed. <laughs> to put it in modern English. I mean, this is impossible. Right? I mean, I can't have righteousness by coming up with my own stuff, by following my own pleasures, by trying to come up with my own law, by, by, by obeying God's word to the letter of the, of the law, by being perfect. And he's, and then Jesus comes along and says, you can't get into heaven at all unless you're even more perfect than them. Because even they're gonna mess up one little bit somewhere along the line. And God's law is so perfect, and His justice is so real, that, that there is no compromising. And so if you wanna go that path, then you better be more perfect than even them. And basically the answer that every listener there uh, in God's in, in Jesus' presence said was, it's not possible. It's absolutely not possible that we would be able to be righteous to stand before God. And you know what the answer is? Exactly. Exactly. You know, the devil might tell you you're unworthy and makes you think you can't come before God, and I'm here to say we aren't worthy. He's right about that. But we are worthy enough to come before God. So the righteousness is not in our doing, but so where does it come from? So it's not a self-righteousness, but it's a God-righteousness. And so the protection of our heart isn't our own doing. Remember, even when Paul sets up all this spiritual um, armor that he has, he says, go in the power of God. This isn't through your own strength, through your own truth around your belt, right? It's not through your own righteousness, but whose righteousness is it? It's the righteousness that comes from God. Because he's saying, don't follow, it's not about following the rules to the letter of the law, but it's who is behind them. It's the heart behind them. And that heart comes from the heart of the Father. So how does it work? How does Jesus make us righteous? There's a great passage, a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Let me read that again. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Christ became the porn addict. Christ became the drug addict. Christ became the alcoholic. Christ became the self-absorbed teenager. Christ became the angry abuser. Christ became the money-hungry professional. 
Christ became the tech-obsessed 30-something, the sex-crazed single guy, the cheat, the liar, the self-righteous Christian, the control freak. Christ became you and me. And so when we talk about the righteousness, we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We'll never attain it. We'll fall short every time. And Satan wants to continually put it in front of us. The Bible calls him the great accuser. He's constantly accusing you. He's constantly pointing at you. You're not good enough. You failed again. You messed up. You gave in to temptation. You didn't do what you were supposed to. You skipped out on church. You didn't read your, your Bible. You were mean to this guy. I know those thoughts that you were harboring. You're not good enough. You're not valuable enough. Getting your eyes off of Christ and onto ourselves and on our trying to earn this rightness and this goodness. And what we need to understand is what Christ's gift is, is that whatever it is in you that's unrighteous, God took you and me, and he became us, and took that punishment on the cross and gave his life because he was without sin. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. He is the one who made you acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy, and he gave himself to purchase our freedom. You see, this is what this is all about. This whole idea of righteousness isn't a weight that we're supposed to carry over us. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing everything right. I've got so much more to grow in my faith and I messed up again and, and now I'm, I, I'm off the beaten track and we beat ourselves up our whole life. It's not a weight that we're supposed to carry, but a freedom we're supposed to live out of. That Christ is saying, I'm giving you the righteousness. You have it through me, not through your own life. And that should make us free. That should make us go, Satan, you can accuse me all you want, but Jesus is paying and has paid the price for my sin. I'm free. It's called grace. It's called the gift from God. It's called forgiveness. That is to make us be people who can raise our chest high and our chin up and say, I'm not perfect. As a matter of fact, because I'm not perfect that I come to Christ. But through Him, I'm free. I'm forgiven. And I and free. And Satan, though, keeps trying to pull us off that path. And one of the ways, and one of the questions you might even ask then is like, well, if Christ has done that, why don't I just keep on sinning? Why don't I just keep on living? However, if Christ has paid it all, if Christ has done all that, why, why don't I just keep doing that? Well, Paul asked the same question in Romans because he knew people like us would be wondering that same question because we're so logical. We're going, hey, in that case, this is a great deal. Um, He's got it all covered. I can keep on sinning, all this stuff. Uh, so in, in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says, So since God's grace has set us free from the law, does this mean we can go on sinning? I love it when the Bible answers exactly to the questions we have, which it always does. Of course not, he says. Don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God and receive his approval. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you have obeyed with all your heart the new teaching God has given you. Now you are free from sin, your old master. And get how he says this. You have become slaves to your new master, righteousness. And so what he's saying here is, how we live matters. And so we just have to flip it around. We don't live the right kind of life to earn the righteousness God gives us. We get that as a gift from God. And it's out of that freedom when we receive that from Christ and say, yes, I accept it. Jesus, I believe in you. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you. It's when we're forgiven 
that we now respond out of love and devotion, right? If somebody who you've been indebted to, you know, for $100,000 just says, you know what, I, I cancel your debt. How would you feel towards that person? That would be like saying, oh, since he canceled a $100,000 debt, can I borrow another $10,000? Right? That's essentially the question of going on sinning, right? This is great. This guy cancels all my debt. I want to borrow some more. How about your, can I have your car? Right? I mean, if, if somebody did that to you and you were the one who just forgave that debt, you'd go, what a jerk. <laughs> I mean, thank God. God doesn't call, think about us that way, but in my human way, that's what I'd say. Like, I just forgave you and you're just going to keep playing on my graces. No. But the way most of us, I think, would respond is with gratitude. And, and saying things like, what, how can I repay you? What can I ever do for you? And, 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 and I just want to, I just want to, I love you. Thank you. You're awesome. And, and it builds that relationship. And so it's out of that forgiveness now that we, that we don't ask the question, can I send some more? But how can I break free from that sin and continue to live for Christ and move in the direction towards Christ? But Satan wants to take us off that path. But you see, right living is so important. Not because we're self-righteous, not because we have it all figured out, but because right living, which is another way of saying righteousness, protects us from so much pain and trouble. See, I think I love God's grace. And I love that when we screw up, anytime we come back to God and we fall on His grace, and He's going to forgive us. But what I love more when I see people in the church and followers of Christ is that they are beginning to not continually to walk that same pattern and keep just abusing God's grace, even though He'll give it. But people who are starting to take steps in their walk with Christ and in their life where they're basing their life on a foundation that is beginning to let them see the fruit of joy that comes, the fruit of life that comes from living rightly, following the Word of God, saying that I'm going to apply the principles that God taught to my marriage. And when you begin to apply those principles to your marriage, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a healthy, happy, whole marriage. Yes, you can when both couples are committed to engaging in this. And that protects you from so much when you protect your heart from anger, from when you keep your eyes, keep your eyes looking on the right things, when you handle your finances in a way that is God-honoring. It protects our hearts. And so even the way that we live matters. And it's important. Again, it's not to earn God's righteousness, but it's a protection for us in the way that we live. And so really it just comes down to what, what kind of self-righteousness are you most prone to? Just following your own pleasures and just giving in to whatever vices and human desires you have and you just throw caution to the wind and, and just say, hey, this is how I live. Or you come up with your own, I believe this or I believe that and I don't take this. And you come up with your own little belief structure so that you can say, hey, everything I believe I own, but you've created it from a bunch of different pieces. Or maybe it's the self-righteousness, again, that comes from that believing that I'm, I'm trying to earn my righteousness from God by the way I'm living. And you beat yourself up when you fail, and then you think you're awesome when you succeed. You know, I came to church today. I get a gold star today. God must love me more. Honestly, he doesn't love you more for being here today. Because God can't love you more because he already loves you. He already loves you as much as possible. But we're here because we want to obey God, and we want to learn from him and worship together and see what happens when we walk in the truth. God wants your heart surrendered to him, but he's never going to do anything to manipulate that. He's not going to do anything that's going to try to trick you. He's not going to force you. All it says in Scripture is that he knocks. He stands at the door and knocks. He knocks quietly and basically saying, hey, open up. You know, whenever you're ready, I'm here. He doesn't force you. So it's our job to respond. I think God today is saying, 
You need to stand firm. It's not through your own strength, not by being a better Christian today. It's by surrendering with humility and saying, God, my heart is with you. i got to get my eyes back. At least for some of you today, you got to take your eyes off of something that's distracting you from the truth of God and saying, i got to put my eyes back on Christ and what he wants to do. Or I'm going to surrender from all my self-righteousness and I'm going to put my life squarely on the foundation of Christ. But my only righteousness is before God, is, is, is through Jesus Christ. Scripture says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One day when we stand before God as our dear friend Tim Gunther has this last week, the question isn't going to be, were you a good person? Or were you at least better than your brother or your neighbor or whomever? You know, you can't go up there and go, I was at least better than that guy. That should earn me something. It's not about our righteousness and our goodness. And the question isn't even going to be, did you know about Jesus? The question is going to be, is Jesus' righteousness what you're here for? Is that what's covering you? Do you know Jesus? Have you, have you surrendered your life to Christ and is your righteousness found in him? And that's all that God's going to see. He goes, yes, come on in. And so that righteousness protects us. And if Satan or anyone else wants to tell you you're unworthy, you're not good enough, you can't do it, um, God doesn't want you, you're never going to amount to anything, He's going to look, look at your past, look who you've done. You can't be a follower of Christ. That's Satan taking your eyes off Christ. Lean into his righteousness, his goodness. Keep focused on him, and that will enable us to stand firm. Let's pray.